Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week, he has a candid conversation with guests, including prime ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. The Guardian. From The Guardian, I'm Shivani Dave, and this is Science Weekly. We've all seen the documentaries, or at least read the countless reviews and opinion pieces they spark. Plant-based or meat-free diets are being lauded for being the key to a healthier life and saving the planet. So in our trip to the archive, we wanted to bring out this episode, asking the question, how do protein substitutes hold up against the real deal? Many people are increasingly conscious of what they eat, be it for health reasons or for the environment. This is especially true when it comes to meat. Giving it up alongside dairy is said to be the biggest thing you can do to reduce your footprint on this planet. And I'm sure you've read about the health implications of eating too much of this stuff. And the burgeoning number of meat alternatives reflect that change of heart. Head to the supermarket and you're bound to have noticed that increasingly, shelves are stacked with veggie burgers, plant-based sausages, and now even faux pulled pork. But how? How can we take something that isn't meat and make it look and taste like, well, meat? And how do they compare, nutritionally speaking? So vitamin B12 is a nutrient that you need to be aware you won't be able to meet on a plant-based diet. Um, And omega-3s is something to just be cautious of as well. This week, we're taking a look at the mock meat movement. And we'll be asking whether giving up meat altogether really is the best thing for the environment. It's, it's really important to acknowledge that even if you're not going to eat meat, that having animals in outdoor naturalistic systems is a really important part of the food, nutrient, water and carbon cycles. I'm Greg Jackson and this is Science Weekly. So my name is Priya Chu. I'm a registered dietitian and I run a practice in Southampton. I thought we'd take a look at the nutritional side of things first because according to the market research firm Mintel, people are increasingly making the switch to meat alternatives for health reasons. I first wanted to get the lowdown on meat so we could better compare them to these alternative protein sources. So meat is a complete protein, which means it contains 
all of the essential amino acids that our body needs. We call it a high quality protein because of this. It does contain some fat, but actually our bodies need fat, don't they? Um, and its amino acid profile is similar to human muscles, which means that if you are trying to recover from an event or you're trying to build muscle, then meat is really good for doing that. It also contains other nutrients. So we've got zinc, we've got iron in there, we've got things like vitamin B12, we've got selenium, things like vitamin B3 and B6 and phosphorus. And that's kind of the makeup nutritionally. And then we've got these smaller nutrients in there as well. So we've got items like creatine, taurine, glutathione, and there's also some cholesterol in there. And a lot of these nutrients are all around providing the muscle with what it needs to build itself. So it sounds like a real mishmash of lots of different ingredients. Can I just pick up on a point of clarity? You mentioned amino acids, and that's a building block of protein. So when you say a complete protein, you mean it has everything in it to make a protein? Is, is that what you're saying? Yes. So the body has certain amino acids that it essentially needs in order to build every other protein. So if it doesn't have one of those, it can't do all the jobs that it needs of building things and repairing things. So for example, some plant proteins will not contain one amino acid. So if you were only relying on that plant protein for your needs, then you would be lacking something and your body wouldn't be able to maybe make an enzyme or make a hormone. I see. Okay. And how much of this do we need to be eating, say, on a daily or weekly basis to ensure that we do get enough of these amino acids? We want to be eating around 50 grams of protein a day. So that would be for an average woman, slightly more for a man. And instead of looking at it in terms of individual amino acids, we just want to be looking at the complete amount of protein you're having and making sure there's a variety across your week. Okay. And, and what is what does 50 grams of protein look like? Is that is that like a chicken breast or? That's going to be a couple of portions of protein in your day so that might be your chicken breast in the evening and you might have your cheese at lunchtime and maybe have some milk with your breakfast and that's going to be enough so a chicken breast might be for example 20 grams I see I see um, and does meat have any bad side effects are there any negatives to our health if we eat meat in these in these portions I'm talking about I'm not talking about eating bucket loads of this stuff if you eat meat in sensible portion sizes, then no, there's no problems with that. It's only when you come to eating large amounts of it or you're eating it, um, you know, maybe you're having two chicken breasts per meal or you're having a lot of red meat, you're eating the more processed versions more often, then that's when the problems come. But sensible amounts at each meal are fine. And when you say the problems will come, what problems might they be? There are some risks of colorectal cancer, for example, and meat does contain a higher amount of saturated fat. So if you were eating large amounts, that would increase your risk potentially of something like heart disease. 
It's important to say here that most of these adverse effects have been linked to red meat, so that's your beef, your lamb, your pork. But as Priya says, if eaten in the right quantities, meat is a good source of not just amino acids, but a whole raft of other nutrients. The reason Priya says around 50 grams a day is because it varies from person to person. According to the British Nutrition Foundation, adults can eat up to 0.75 grams of protein a day for each kilogram they weigh. So let's say you weigh 70 kilograms, or 11 stone, then you can eat up to 52.5 grams of protein every day. However, a lot of us in the UK eat way more than we need, up to 55% more according to the National Diet and Nutrition Survey, and that's where the trouble can begin. But what about mock meats? What effect might they have on our health? There are lots of them, so we thought we'd look at three of the most popular ones, starting with tofu. So tofu is made from soy milk and the curds from that are pressed into blocks. Um, It's low in fat. It is a good protein source. Um, It's also low in calories, but it doesn't have as many other nutrients as meat has. So it's also good to check when you're looking at tofu whether it's been fortified. Many of the tofus now will have things like calcium and iron put back into them. So that's something to just check out. Mm -hmm. And you say it's a good source of protein. How about those amino acids we were talking about earlier? So none of the plant-based proteins are complete in terms of their amino acid profile, apart from there's a few exceptions. So there's exceptions to every rule, aren't there? (laughs) But um, buckwheat, quinoa and soy are complete proteins. So the tofu, therefore, would be a good protein source because it's made from the soy milk. Next, seitan. So what it is, and again, this is a really interesting one. It's made from wheat gluten. So if you have a problem with gluten or you're a celiac, definitely stay away. This is not one for you. Um, So water is added into the wheat flour and the starch is removed. And you're left with this dense, chewy texture. Now, what's good about it is it's really high in protein compared to something like tofu. So we've got double the protein in this um, and it's equivalent to meat in terms of its protein content. It's low in carbohydrate and it's got a good amount of ions. I think that's really important to think about because when you're removing things like red meat from your diet, there is a risk of you not having enough iron. So therefore, this is a good choice to be making. Um, And it's also low in fat as well. That strikes me as amazing that something that's made from wheat, essentially, can be so hard. You know, wheat, I consider as as a carb, I see it in pasta, I see it in bread, can be so high in both iron and protein naturally. Yes, it is. It is an amazing product, I think. The issue with things like tofu and all of these foods is they don't always have a lot of flavor by themselves so they can take a bit of practice when you're getting used to cooking them thinking what sauce you're going to put with them and what how are you going to put the flavor on there I see I see okay and something I've also seen popping up recently is is jackfruit um given that that's not in your list of amino acid complete uh, proteins um how does that look if we're looking at other nutrients and protein more generally 
Jackfruit's a really interesting one because the clue's in the name. It's actually a fruit rather than really being a protein source. So yes, it is being talked about in terms of its protein content, but it's low in protein. So if we compare it to meat, it contains a lot less protein there. So I would say the benefit of jackfruit is its texture. So it has that meaty texture. If you were somebody who actually likes meat and you're trying to replace it, then jackfruit is a good option there. But you want to be having some other protein with that as well in your meal. It's high in carbohydrates. So you could say that you're using it as a fruit and a vegetable instead of using it as your protein and then have your tofu in with that meal as well. Presumably a lot of how healthy these things are are how we process them. Often when I see jackfruit, it's been made in something that, as you say, resembles meat, like I've seen pulled pork and stuff. But when I looked it up online, it looks a bit like a melon, a spiky yellow melon. And so it looks nothing like what I see when I you know, go out into the market to have it. So how much does processing affect all that nutritional benefits that you might get from eating a a piece of fruit say the processing it's hard to tell because it depends on what product you're looking at but there is a quite often added sugar that's put in with it um jackfruit is um actually a fruit that my mum used to eat a lot of because i'm half sri lankan mm-hmm. and it is one of those fruits that has got quite a distinctive flavor to it so often sugar is added in there that's worth checking out and with everything there's going to be added ingredients that you need to just check the back of the label on sugar is one salt is another an action on salt report from 2018 showed quote excessive amounts of salt in processed meat alternatives the group which are based at Queen Mary, University of London, found that nearly a third of the 157 products surveyed exceeded maximum recommended salt levels. They even reported that two products were shown to contain more salt per 100 grams than seawater. So make sure you take a look at the back of the packets carefully. Overall though, Priya is pretty positive about alternative protein sources, so long as you get a variety of them. Yes, that's absolutely right. And also don't forget the other protein sources that there are. So the simple bean, pulse and nut and seed, they also contain protein and are important to be including in your diet if you're eating less meat. And also whole grains have got some in. So thinking about that buckwheat and things like quinoa, they also have some protein there. So from what Priya is saying, it sounds like switching to meat-free alternatives can be just as healthy as the real deal. But there were a couple of things that Priya wanted to make me aware of, and one of them was a vitamin B12 deficiency. Pretty much. There's a couple of things to be wary of. So vitamin B12 is a nutrient that you need to be aware you won't be able to meet on a plant-based diet. Um, And omega-3s is something to just be cautious of as well. But you can get so much great nutrition from plant-based foods. Now that's the impact of meat and mock meats on our health. But what about the environment? We often read headlines saying that livestock farming is a huge contributor to climate change. 
But is that picture too simplistic? And could certain kinds of cattle farming actually have benefits for the planet? Their dung and their urine also is reintroducing nutrients into the soil. And they're actually supporting huge populations of insects. In particular, we've seen a huge rise in dung beetles. That's all coming up after the break. Lab from The Guardian. Hey, do you ever want a quick catch-up on the news headlines first thing in the morning while you're making breakfast or getting dressed? Well, if you have a Google Assistant or Google Home, we can help with that. The Guardian Briefing is an experiment from The Voice Lab, which in under two minutes brings you up to speed with what you need to know about the day's top stories. We'll make sure you don't miss a thing. To listen at any time, just say, Hey Google, speak to the Guardian briefing. Welcome back to Science Weekly. I'm Greer Jackson. Before the break, we looked at the mock meat movement and compared the alternative protein sources to the real deal. Many people make this switch for their health but others choose to cut down on their meat consumption to help reduce their environmental footprint. And while this half of the programme is going to look primarily at meat and its impact on the environment, I wanted to point out that some of the meat alternatives aren't perfect. According to a 2019 white paper from the World Economic Forum, the emission intensity, so that's the carbon dioxide emitted per calorie, of tofu was not dissimilar to pork. But even microprotein, which the paper claims is the highest producing plant-based alternative, ranked significantly lower than beef. So is all beef bad for the planet? Do you want me to say hello or just... Whatever you want, (laughs) whatever takes your fancy. (laughs) Hello, I'm Fiona Harvey. I'm the environment correspondent at The Guardian. You must have written a lot about the impact of the beef and dairy industry on the environment. We all hear how bad it is, but just how bad is it? Well, if things continue uh, as they are, then this is going to be uh, one of the biggest sources of, of carbon on the planet. Because when we eat meat, we're actually unwittingly consuming a great deal of carbon. Because what you have to consider is not just the carbon that's actually produced by the animals, but there's also the effect of animal husbandry and the food that the animals eat. So the land that is used to produce the food the animals eat, that can be on deforested land quite often. So, for instance, land in the Amazon. Mm. And it's not just that there's a big carbon footprint associated with the beef and dairy. There also can be some quite big effects on the local environment as well to the to the wildlife but also you hear a lot about eutrophication which is where fertilizers or too much fertilizers are used on the soil and that leads to the pollution of our waterways and depletion of oxygen within them. Yeah that's right particularly where you have intensive cattle farming then you're excluding wildlife effectively from from those areas. Some of this farming can be almost industrial Now, I want to pick you up on a word you said there, because you said some, some farms 
So presumably that means not all farms are farmed like this. Absolutely not. There are many farmers uh, who choose to use other methods. And in fact, there are studies that show that we could uh, use other methods at a much, much wider scale without having to turn to intensive industrial agriculture. One such farm is run by Isabella Tree. She joined Fiona and me down the line. With her husband Charlie, Isabella owns Nepp Estate, a farm nestled in the county of Sussex, about an hour's drive south of London. And when they first got their hands on it, it was in a bad way. Um, when we inherited in 1985, it was already a failing farm as a business. We were losing money hand over fist and we just assumed that was because Charlie's grandparents hadn't invested in infrastructure and didn't know the latest sort of technology. And Charlie, my husband being a child of the Green Revolution, felt that he could turn the farm around with all the new technologies coming online, bigger machinery, more pesticides, more nitrates, more fungicides, more everything, more chemicals on the land. And 17 years later, we realised that our overdraft was one and a half million and we just couldn't go on. So even with subsidies on our heavy clay soil, we just could not make ends meet. And so Isabella and her husband decided to try a new approach to farming, an approach developed by a Dutch ecologist. That we managed to, to meet this amazing Dutch ecologist, Franz Vera, whose theories about free-roaming, grazing and browsing animals were really sending shockwaves through the, the scientific and conservation world at the time. And he was really saying that we'd forgotten about all the free-roaming animals that would have been in our landscape before human impact. And they were the kind of drivers of biodiversity. They're the things that create the habitats. And that if you want to recover biodiversity, if you get these free-roaming animals in the right numbers, in the right places, then magical things start to happen. So we saw an opportunity here and we thought, well, why don't we try this as an experiment? If we can get nature back onto our severely depleted soils, onto our kind of biological desert that was what our land was after, after intensive farming for 50, 60 years, then we could prove something, that actually nature can bounce back if you, if you let it. And bounce back it did. And this is really important because, as Fiona said earlier, some farms exclude wildlife. If we want to increase biodiversity, finding a more inclusive approach is paramount. Isabella has written about this transformation in her book, Wilding, the Return of Nature to British Farms. And she's also written about it for The Guardian. I've put a link to both on our podcast page. Just head over to theguardian.com slash podcasts and navigate to this episode. It's really been an absolutely astonishing journey. Over the, It's less than 20 years since we gave up farming intensively. So we're really kind of ranching, I suppose, now. We, we're, we, we've introduced free-roaming animals, so they're sort of proxies of what would have been here in the past. So we have Old English longhorn cattle that are standing in for the aurochs, their ancestor, and we have Exmoor ponies being a, a good imitation of a tarpan, and we have Tamworth pigs being wild boar, and we have red deer and fallow deer, and all those animals are out there free roaming. Um, so it sort of transitioned over about six years. And in that time, you see these kind of fists of dog rose, bramble, blackthorn, hawthorn, punching up through the old arable fields. 
And those very quickly become nesting places for, for birds, including some of our rarest species like turtle doves and nightingales, because they find um, uh, uh, nesting places that are safe from predation, protected by this thorny scrub. So very suddenly you get this really rich mosaic of a sort of tapestry of thorny scrub, open grazed lawns, water meadows, groves of sallow trees, and that is rocket fuel for biodiversity. So you go out there now, on a, even on a day like today, a cloudy day like today, and you'll just feel birdsong, wall-to-wall birdsong and insects. It's just astonishing. Why is it that the cattle have been rocket fuel for the environment? What is it that they have enabled to cause this great change? Well, this is, I think, the key thing. And um, it's, it's a factor that's really forgotten in the, in the current sort of debate, is the importance of animals in the nutrient, of, of herbivores particularly, in the nutrient cycle. So they're moving plants around the landscape, eating them in one place, dunging them out in another, ready to take off in a perfect sort of pile of compost. But their their dung and their urine also is uh, reintroducing nutrients into the soil. And they're actually supporting huge populations of insects. In particular, we've seen a huge rise in dung beetles. They're a keystone species in a way. They're reintroducing that nutrient-rich dung and that structure back into the soil by consuming and, and using that dung for their nests underground. So maybe cows are not the environmental monsters they're made out to be. They can, if farmed in a more sustainable way, contribute so much to the local environment, and especially soil. The condition of our soil is a huge concern. The UN has warned that soils around the world are heading for exhaustion and depletion. They estimate there are only 60 harvests left before they're too barren to feed the planet. And so you can see how important livestock could be in helping to regenerate our impoverished soils. What we found here at NEP, which has astonished everybody, including us, is that our soils in 20 years have regenerated. We've now got 19 different species of earthworms. We talked about the dung beetles earlier on. That's just one species of the many soil biota that are now back in our soils. Um, And we've doubled our soil carbon sequestration. And that's within 20 years. So it really shows how, how, how powerful it can be just to let the soils relax and to, to let them regenerate using these, these free-roaming herbivores. It's important to say that Nepa State isn't a nature reserve. They sell meat. And like everything, this process isn't perfect. It's probably not scalable, for one. Given how much meat we all consume, there just isn't enough land. And whilst the carbon footprint will be lower than other farms, there still will be a footprint. Even if, as Isabella says, the soil is restored and more carbon is sequestered. And then some may have ethical objections about raising cattle for slaughter, but that's for another podcast. The environmental costs of farming was something that the National Farmers Union raised just this week. In a document, they named climate change as one of their critical policy areas. 
they want to encourage policymakers to, quote, champion policies that allow farmers to reduce emissions by boosting farm competitiveness and profitability, end quote. What we can say about Isabella's approach is that it's better than what Fiona calls intensive farming. The main differences here are between intensive farming, which is is almost like you'd think it was a factory rather than a farm. So if we carry on eating red meat increasingly in the way that we have been doing, we'll just outstrip the amount of nature available and we'll destroy wildlife. On the other hand, if you can do small-scale farming... Uh, it's, which is more in harmony with the environment, takes more account of, of local conditions. You may produce less meat overall, uh, but you will do it much better and you will have all these extra problems that you're creating. It would mean, though, if you produced at that level, people would probably have to eat less meat and they might have to pay more for it. Uh, but we're eating too much red meat for our health, in any case, in, in Western countries, um, and so, you know, giving up meat or, or, or eating less meat um, would probably be uh, good for most of us in, in many ways. Could meat alternatives be a part of the answer then? I put this to Fiona. Definitely it's part of the answer, but it does have to be done in the right way. You just want to make sure, first of all, that, that these are being grown in a sustainable way and the inputs are, are sustainable, and then also uh, that they're being kept healthy for consumers, because there's no point in moving from a diet that is heavy in unhealthy things like a lot of red meat, if you eat too much of it, or a lot of processed meat. There's no point in moving from a diet like that to a diet where you're eating things that are equally processed and high in fat and salt and other things that that you probably shouldn't be eating so much of, and and, and use that as your alternative. What's what's the gain there in terms of your health? So we need to make sure that we are keeping it healthy for the consumer and that we are also keeping it sustainable for the environment with a low carbon footprint and a low footprint on nature. Links to the latest reporting on veganism and recipes for meat-free meals from The Guardian are on the podcast's webpage. On Thursday, we are staying in the archive, but switching things up and looking at carnivore ecology as we take a look at the declining population of big cats in the wild. It's one of my favourite episodes. If you've got any thoughts, feedback or episode ideas for when we come back, drop us a message at scienceweekly at theguardian.com. Bye for now. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week, he has a candid conversation with guests, including prime ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.